Hello, it's Fletcher Hug Blurney Bellagish, Podfrey Ur Okunasa Bellagis Aaron and Shaw in Kalash to Alskala Walakia. Hello, folks, and welcome to episode two of Blurney Bellagish, the new podcast from the National Folklore Collection here in UCD. I'm Claire Doohan. I'm Johnny Dillon. And we're part of the archive team here in the Folklore Collection. We hope you enjoyed our first introductory episode, which looked at some of the definitions of folklore and some common misconceptions surrounding the discipline. We also looked at the early history of folklore collection in Ireland and Europe and the main ideologies and people driving its growth and development. Um, For those of you who missed it, this first episode is available on our SoundCloud platform and will be available shortly on iTunes too, as will this and all upcoming episodes, as suggested by one of our loyal listeners. Um, we We welcome all such feedback actually on the podcast series, so do keep getting in touch with all ideas and recommendations. It's it's actually really nice hearing feedback already because it's very much what we want to aim for, isn't it? Kind of an True interactive and yeah. um, participatory project. So we were joking about this yesterday, Johnny, but actually I feel a bit like, um, is it Fraser Crane? You know, Seattle, I'm listening, or we're listening. And we are, because we'd actually love to action any points that you recommend and that you'd like us to explore a bit further. So today in this second episode, that we're still here, we haven't been fired or sent to the law courts um, for libel yet, we'll be looking at our first (laughs) substantive topic and a timely one too actually, that of May Day and the traditions, beliefs, customs and lore which accompany this quarter day boundary festival on May 1st each year. Um, And it's a really vivid and colourful period in the Irish traditional calendar custom. So for the sake of completeness and to avoid confusion, because there is a lot of ground to cover um, with a topic like this, Johnny and I thought we'd be a bit strategic about it and look at the festival in two stages, I suppose. Firstly, the practical traditions, customs and responsibilities of the May Festival. And then we'll move to the more liminal and supernatural and maybe the magical aspects of the period. But before that we thought, having discussed it, that it might be worth touching on and kind of familiarising ourselves with this idea of calendar custom that we speak about a lot in folklore. But for those coming to this podcast, maybe the first time, would like a bit more information on, um, just to see how we measure and mark the passing of time and what that might have meant for kind of previous generations. So, Johnny, I'll get you to start on calendar custom and then we'll move through our schedule as we go. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting area or aspect of folk tradition. And last in the last episode, we were talking about some of the definitions of folk tradition and then some of the different groupings as well, even though they're not entirely satisfactory, but mentioning, say, the narrative tradition, singing, storytelling, that kind of what we'd call oral literature, mm-hmm. and then material culture as part of folk tradition. Um, and so which would be kind of crafts, foods, or houses, all these kind of more physical expressions. Mm-hmm. And then in between that, what's called social folk custom, rites of passage, rituals, and calendar observances. But calendar custom was said by Kevin Danaher, one of the, the, the renowned folklorists who worked for the commission here, um, that it was the area of folk tradition that most broadly revealed the panorama of the whole. That in it you'd find all these aspects of oral literature, of singing, um, of narrative, um, of material culture, effigies, clothes, foods, as well as ritual customs, divination, magic, all would attach themselves to certain times of the year. So calendar custom, I suppose, is a particularly kind of broad um, area mm. full of 
a huge array of different kind of traditions that, that would kind of go along with it. And May Day as well as part of that uh, has a kind of blinding amount of material uh, that's, that's kind of connected to it. And all over Europe as well, you have these kind of celebrations um, largely to welcome in the summer. Yeah. So sometimes, you say, even, again, in one of the ways to explain this to, to people who mightn't have a sense of it, um, May Day is one of the quarter days. Mm. And the quarter days, quite, I suppose, simply enough, as they, they do, as they say, they, they divide the year into quarters. Yeah. So if you were to imagine the year as a wheel, which you then kind of split into four different quarters, there are festivals at those quarter points that represent, in a way, the essence of the season, maybe, that's, that's being ushered in by them. So the other quarter days we have would be, for example, um, Lammas, Lunasa, the 1st of August, um, Halloween, Sound, the 1st of November, um, then we'd have Lollabrigida, St. Bridges Day, the 1st of February, and then La Bialtana, May Day, on the 1st of May. And so even at a very basic level, I suppose, these, this, the, the light half and dark half of the year were thought to begin both at Sound, at Halloween, when we have our death festival, and then at May time at Beltane. Mm. So the year is kind of divided in half in that basic, that kind, that kind of fundamental way, really. Um, so a lot of the, the customs that we'll look at and traditions that relate to May Day all pertain to the kind of the asserting of boundaries. Mm. Um, it's a time of kind of paranoia in a certain sense in the community. Yeah, if you wouldn't want to leave the house... Having no. read all that we've read, no, I just think not. I'm going to stay in on Monday yeah, and yeah. not do anything. Else. Close the blinds, lock the doors, <laughs> exactly. do not light your fire. Don't answer do. the phone. Don't answer the phone, yeah. don't do anything. You're doomed, basically. Pretty much. It's the same, in the same sense that the other world is seen to be very active at Halloween. The yeah. same thing is occurring at, at in Bielton in May. But Mormon um, kind of um, malevolent in some ways in May Day, whereas at Halloween, I don't know whether you feel this, that there's a, a more accepting sense of this intrusion of the supernatural, whereas on May Day it's really threatening. It is, this yeah, sense, yeah, which it, will come to we will, yeah, yeah. It, it is quite threatening, I suppose, at least in Halloween, when you um, kind of welcome, well, you welcome the yeah, dead, you welcome yeah. your dead ancestors, you leave the the, you know, the west facing windows of the house, etc., open, people would set a feast for the dead to yeah. return. Um, at May Day, it's all about ensuring your good luck for the year ahead and trying to avoid damage, basically. Mm. But it's worth even in, in thinking that, in thinking of time. And how time is understood in the kind of in a modern context as quite an empty or indifferent series of points, all endless, uh, all kind of equal, but all different in the same way. Whereas in in in, in a traditional sense, time, the, the year is viewed as a kind of cycle from 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 dark to light, from you know death to, to life, season, season to season, an yeah. endless cycle. And and the festivals, and the changes that we see in nature find expression, uh, or their meaning is awakened in the festivals that we used to express them. So it makes sense that we'd have a death festival when the sun is coursing low across the sky in winter, when the earth is hollow and bare, when nothing is growing. There's a kind of an emotional or symbolic resonance that makes a natural amount of sense then that we'd have that. Likewise, it makes sense that we'd have a kind of spring or fertility festival on the 1st of, mm. of, of February when these kind of concerns and things are, are rep the, the landscape and the natural world is representing this kind of change. And same in, at May time as well. You have these kind of, the, the, particularly the preoccupation with the herdsman yeah. and, and their, uh, the, the, their cattle that they have and, and the idea that they have to kind of protect their lot, specifically to protect their butter and more broadly speaking, protect their look. But within that, at this boundary point, the fairies are moving around, the other world is kind of, um, and the, this world and the other world, the kind of the barriers between them kind of disappear. Yeah. It was celebrated all over Europe in, in, in Germany. Um, Walpurgisnacht is, is the, the night that's held, or Hexennacht, Witches' Night, which sounds more like a Halloween kind of thing, yeah, where witches meet on the, the highest peaks of these mountains in central Germany. 
and have a big party with the devil, as you do. As you do. Um, and Faust, in, in Goethe's novel, uh, Faust goes up and has his um, kind of descent into hell, basically, or into his kind of final degeneracy kind of occurs on Hexenacht in that night. So you have that other world kind of connection at this time that has more in keeping with what you might imagine Halloween to be. But that's all over Europe. Bonfires were lit um, and these celebrations were held. But also the summer was welcomed in with flowers often as well. But you so, do, you see common kind of motifs, don't you, in the celebrations across Europe? To- totally, and that goes into to see as well, although it ties into what we were talking about last week, that the interest in folk tradition, although we see the particular expressions of a people in one place in Ireland or different parts of Ireland, you see it as part of our broader European tradition and our, our broader European heritage and inheritance, mm-hmm. that this is a thing where... where uh, European peoples in Estonia, in, in Czech, in Germany, Hungary, in, in, you know, all over are having bonfires and are celebrating uh, this night and this time, this quarter day, as the light half of the year now begins. Uh, and, and this is kind of how we, how we mark that. So although we're looking at it specifically in an Irish context, it has a much broader um, European uh, kind of basis to it. It's part of that kind of wider landscape. Which is good to remember. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but apart from, I suppose, the customs and the the kind of the supernatural element of it, there's quite an amount of practical concerns mm-hmm. that were uh, of interest at the time. Um, and about which I'd actually know very little, being a deeply impractical uh, fellow at the moment. Well, see, this is, this is where yin and yang, Johnny. Yes, you work, do the yeah. supernatural, I'll do the boring practical that, bits. Perfect. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, as you said, the practical side of May Day... Um, was because it's very easy to think of festivals as serving perhaps an entertainment purpose or thinking about it in terms of those supernatural elements. But again, for our ancestors and for those kind of living in a traditional way of life in the country, the transition from one season to the next um, required or um, demanded that they observe certain responsibilities and duties in order to kind of progress through the year. And May Day in particular, and Kevin Danhart talks about this quite a bit, and there are um, a multitude actually of articles and chapters and books written if anyone was interested in the practical side. It's good. <laughs> Rules are fun, folks. Rules are fun. Um, do get in touch because we could actually kind of share a reading list. <laughs> but if you think about May Day, just to kind of give everyone a full picture of what May Day entails, we start thinking about it kind of things as simple as tenancy agreements even. So on May Day, as the quarter day on the 1st of May, or at the beginning of May in most places, um, likewise, the beginning of November, so those two quarter days, um, Belthania and Samhain, tenancy agreements would begin. And it was actually often called by many as gale days, where land tenancies would usually begin or end. And also kind of the first half of the year's rent would become due. So people are obviously thinking about these very practical terms and how they're going to meet these kind of legal requirements. As well as that, we've got very practical duties like turf cutting season is due to mm. begin, and anyone who spent any time on bogs would probably either love it or dread this time of year. But again, some very physical hard work to cut foot and save the winter's fuel, because again, although it's the beginning of summer, you're always looking ahead to what's going to be needed for of the well-being of the family and the homestead in the seasons to come. As well as that, you're going to see farmers thinking about kind of preparing meadows and kind of their tillage area for the months ahead, clearing rocks and just preparing it so that all is in place for the planting season. Then you've got 
Um, docking and castration, which is a very practical thing, just for the sake of completeness, we'll mention it, but we'll move swiftly it's on. Yes, yeah, for Johnny getting nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and then two of the most interesting aspects um, that I wanted to kind of focus primarily on were the hiring fairs and the summer pasture known as the Bullion in Irish. And these were kind of, they've not passed out of memory wholly, but it's there are two customs that are not practiced as readily as they would have been in the past. So even just if we think back on kind of turf cutting seasons, meadow preparation, working with the animals, it's a very kind of labor intensive period at the beginning of May. So it makes sense that it's all hands on deck or kind of, I'm mixing my metaphors now, but um, boots on the ground. So it's good to have as many people um, available for service as possible. So it would make sense that farmers and landowners would seek more labour. So this is where we see the hiring fairs coming into place. And even in our kind of manuscripts here in the collection, you'll see I have one gentleman from Cavan, and he talks about hiring fairs happening twice a year, um, at the beginning of May, on May Day, and in November. Mm-hmm. But then you've got a newspaper article that we found from Donegal where they have four hiring fairs a year. And again, as you said, on the quarter days, 1st of February, 1st of May, 1st of August, and 1st of November. And in Wexford, we saw that they had a very um, popular hiring day that drew crowds from all across the county for the sake of entertainment, but also beginning these new work contracts. And the hiring fairs as well, we should say, um, you kind of get a really, you know, how would I say, vivid account of them, depending on the samples that we have in the collection here. So you'll have those who speak about them as, in terms of almost cheap slave labour, really mm. kind of very negative connotations. And there was one gentleman from Donegal who spoke about it in terms of that the landowner owned your your legs and your arms, your body and your soul. And it was just a kind of give you goosebumps a bit mm. because I would have grown up hearing about the, the traditions in Donegal of going to the, the lagging area. And these really kind of, not everyone was treated well, unfortunately. So hiring fairs would have played a huge, huge part in kind of at, in the May tradition at the beginning of May. But there's a lovely account from Wexford, which I'll just read so that we don't end the hiring fairs on a, on a sad note. Oh. <laughs> but, Johnny, so it's, um, where is it? So this would have been 1870 in Wexford, where it says, for weeks before the, um, the hiring fair at the beginning of May, preparations are made by the girls to come out in all their strength of finery, for in the Irish town on that day, Cupid holds his camp. Old loves are revived, new ones initiated, and not infrequently, and it not infrequently happens that tenderer and more lasting engagements are made than those between master and servant. So, stop the lights. Good to know. Good to know. So, hiring fairs, serving a very practical purpose of recruiting mm. labourers for farmers to do all this um, practical work that would need to be done on the farm but also for um, an opportunity of much merriment of singing dancing Hmm. and courtship as well like any of the the times of the year when the whole community gets together for a grand kind of endeavor like the harvest as well was in the time Mm. when when people would have to work together or men and women are brought together in bridal capacities to work which often they wouldn't be they would do men's work and women's work largely Mm. and the whole community wouldn't be brought together but um, i remember chatting to somebody in the archive uh, a woman 
a number of years ago and there was, she grew up in a farm in Louth, I think, if I remember correctly, and there was uh, some gentleman, like a farmhand, who, who was there for her whole life and, and died. Then He was an elderly man as she was growing up at some stage, as far as I recall. But he had been initially kind of hired by her father at a hiring fair and, and he stayed and lived with them uh, on, on the farm until he died, yeah. yeah. So it's that kind of, I suppose there's that... that history of the kind of the traveling the traveling laborer traveling worker yeah. and so on but in some some instances maybe it wasn't entirely as bad there must have been absolutely awful cases as yeah well. but yeah, in some instances maybe it wasn't um, it's funny that you mentioned the 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 kind of um romantic engagements and so on is it uh ovid who we'll mention later on as well you're showing off now johnny I, well he was had, it ovid <laughs> who said <laughs> it was and exactly it was it was two thousand years ago in ad 17 and he was saying that um that that brides basically who who marry in May that they'll make terrible wives or short wives or they'll, or they'll die and you still have today yeah, you should marry, marry, marry in May rule the day yeah absolutely. that's like two thousand years old you have Eld Ovid ranting about the same thing and uh, it's, it's still kind of the idea that people shouldn't marry at this time it still holds true yeah and I don't know where that comes from except again you have the sense of boundary and maybe that you shouldn't engage in a new work while it, while everything is in such flux and yeah. such kind of metaphysical disarray for want of a better word that you shouldn't engage. Maybe in an engagement per se, you know, or or a wedding or something like that. Um, certainly, the, t- the the tendency was for everyone to be married by Shrove, and you couldn't get married at night. But then that was kind of after Easter, it was fine again. But uh, but yeah, that tendency seems to exist still for over thousands of years that, that people shouldn't marry at this time. Mm, um, yeah. And so, just to finish up on those kind of practical issues that we were talking about, I thought it useful to, for the sake of completeness, to mention it, this kind of the summer pasture idea. And this idea of the bully or the bulia, which is a very old, ancient tradition in Ireland, but also north, um, northwestern Europe, really, and through into continental Europe and beyond. And the academic term, I suppose, which we were speaking about recently is transhumans, which always sounds a little bit um, frightening. But it's the practice of moving livestock simply from one grazing ground to another kind of in a seasonal cycle. And we see references to it in Ireland in 7th century texts. Um, we've got the likes of Geoffrey Keating speaking about it in his Tree Virgleichen Wesh. We see it referenced in the early Brehen Laws. We see it referenced in some 15th century poetry. This whole idea, although they might not call it um, kind of bullying or bullying or whatever various terms are, the, the idea and the parameters of this tradition are obviously showing through that they always had this idea of moving livestock to kind of coincide with the seasonal transition. And it's also mentioned in the prose lives of St. Bridget as well, in that we have a story about her going to see, going to the bully and then being so generous and so kind-hearted that when she would have the butter made in these summer pastures, she would actually share it with the community as opposed to keeping it for her farmer to whom she was hired. And then the miracle happening that each time the farmer came to kind of collect the butter, although she should have much less than she would, um, somehow it had magically mm. reappeared and she had plenty. And the farmer never kind of took umbrage with this because he always got his due. So it's that idea of um, this movement of stock that is very old and very ancient in the Irish tradition and that we see referenced from the 7th century onwards. So what it is, for those who don't know, um, it's on kind of the 1st of May or thereabouts at the very beginning of May anyway, kind of the cattle who would have been buyer fed 
and sheltered for the period up till May would have been let loose and taken to kind of higher summer pastures in the mountains where there was obviously at that time more lush grass as to as opposed to what would be um, on lower land I suppose and you'd see these little communities built up on higher mountain areas which now to us just sounds like this very um, primitive idea of living when we're so used to you know, the hustle and bustle of city life but each May you'd see the unmarried kind of daughters and sisters and women of the communities driving the cattle to these higher pastures and on average now from what I've been reading and the recollections that we see in the archive they'd be no more than 10 miles from the community that they called home and on average maybe four to five miles just because once they were there they would have to kind of transport materials and kind of milk products back and forth so you wouldn't want them to be too far away and each community had a specific area that they had rights over. So you'll see certain communities speaking about, oh, we always send our girls and our cattle here or there. So there's always this parameter um, where they have rights over, depending on what's given to them by the landlords at the time or so on or what they own. And kind of if you want to paint a picture of what these little bullies, as they were called, um, look like, they're little kind of communities built up really of stone huts with thatch. So some of them you would see they're described in the archive as being made of stone with thatched roofs and kind of wooden doors, maybe one chimney. Others are made of a mixture of stone and sod work. And they might be standalone or some might have been built into little, um, kind of embedded into slopes for a bit of shelter. And some of them would be very simply laid out one room. Others might be a bit more sophisticated but mostly we see a lot of um kind of recollections dealing with this one room but actually you kind of get this idea that they were very comfortable you've got beds made out of um kind of heather that kind of gives the appearance of being very warm and very solid and that they would have had their own blankets with them they would have a fireplace then they would bring all their tools in order to kind of look after the um the milking and the butter making processes so you'd have all your utensils there as well as tools for knitting and sewing that they would do in the evening. And one of the interesting things, as I mentioned earlier, was it was predominantly women, mm. mostly all young women and young girls. There was one reference from a Niall Duffy who speaks of his mother going when she was 13, which is really young. And so we're kind of talking around that late, kind of, I'd say probably mid-teens onwards, upwards, um, unmarried daughters and sisters of the community and they would take their cattle but also some of them might be responsible for looking after the cattle of other families who didn't have girls mm. so in these huts or the bohogi as they'd be called in Irish you've got references to maybe three the girls from three families living together so it's this lovely communal air to it and basically what they were responsible for was for the it varies. Some would stay there for five weeks, but then we've got recollections saying that they would have stayed for the entire summer season. And they would be responsible for herding the cattle um, on a daily basis, looking after them. The milk milking process and then the making of the butter, the storing of the milk products. And then usually once a week in most of the recollections, they would send someone home with them if they were going to maybe mass on Sunday or someone would come from the community and collect them um, for used by the family in the community at home or for the market because, again, milk and dairy products played such a fundamental role in the economy of Ireland, and we've seen that for centuries, that 
it would be used either by the family or sent to market in order to generate kind of revenue for the family. And again, touching on that lighter side that always comes with such activities in our Irish life, we see the girls in the evening, a lot of them would have kind of been busy sewing and working with wool and various kind of domestic tasks. But then at the weekend, you see references to the the gentlemen of the um, community coming up to see them. Of the parish. Of the parish, which always sounds a bit ominous. I'm like, God, there they are, isolated, and the men coming. So they would go for, and again, it's just lovely, this atmosphere of singing, dancing, and breaking, I suppose, the monotony of the girls' mm. lives up there, kind of day after day. And then at the end of the season, you see them herding the cattle back once the, um, kind of, the... Because again, it's that whole idea of it being good for the cattle as well, so that you go and you get the freshness of the new grass, but then at the end of the season, the farm has been prepared. So once the girls are away, the farmer and all those other tasks we were looking at is preparing the farm for the next season. So it's timely that the cattle be sent back. And again, it's a one-day transition, getting to the bully, and likewise, when they get back, everything's transported back until the following year. And the bohogi would be, would be left you kind of hear um, samples of sheep and animals on the mountain then making use of the bohogi in the down season. But they would remain there untouched until the following year when, again, the men of the community would go up maybe a week before to prepare them to fix anything that needed fixing before the new season. Hmm. And kind of to finish on that point, because, again, there's so much literature on that alone. We were talking about this yesterday, Johnny, and I do love a quote. So... One of the descriptions um, about the bully to finish on, because again, it comes across as a very idyllic time in people's lives. You've got, um, this is Kevin Danaher in Summer Pasture in Ireland, writing, everyone has agreed that life in the summer pasture was pleasant and joyful. It was good to be alive. There was the joy, the fun, the pleasure, the singing and the music. The hills were alive. In the evening, with the day's work done, the girls gathered talk, sing, play and dance, often joined on Sunday or holiday evenings by the young men from the home places. Many looked forward with delight to the pastures, left them with regret in the autumn and kept happy memories of them into old age. So again, it's that, it's a very positive overview mm. of this tradition of bullying or unbullying. And again, it's got various names. It's got Bulchahas, Bullies, Kiminya, Comintis, Kolpi, varies across all of Ireland, um, especially Donegal, Galway, Mayo, down that side. But as you said, as with most things in Irish folklore, it ties in with this broader tradition where we see references to it in Norway, Finland, Sweden, down to Spain, Switzerland, Germany. You've got references to Joseph and Hebron having this idea of seasonal transition of cattle. Mm. So it's a very ancient custom but again, one of the crucial aspects of May that I think we'd probably be doing our listeners a disservice if we didn't mention it. That's fantastic, yeah. yeah. So. You can imagine as well, the, um, like as you described, the excitement that people would feel mm. being away from the home, being out, especially if you're a teenager or something yeah, like that, yeah. being up in these pastures and with weather turning and stuff like that and the kind of um, the freedom. The camaraderie and the freedom yeah. and so on that, that would be at that, yeah. Um, it's fantastic. I didn't know that. And, and as well, there's... Um, who was thinking of uh, George Fraser, the Golden Bough, who wrote that? He he suggests this time, May time, as a particularly 
uh, as the farmers or the herdsman's festival. Mm-hmm. That it's not, um, it's, it's, there's no huge kind of agricultural or crop-based work to start or occur necessarily at this time, but it's all about herds and moving of herds, and that idea is particularly old. And you see then customs that reflect that in Ireland as well, about the cattle and, and, and um, driving them between fires and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff as well. Um, but yeah, it's fantastic, the, um, the kind of, as well, I suppose, how the, again, how aspects of material culture will bleed into these other kind of traditions or provide another yeah, space. You see it you there, know. don't you? And there are maps as well, I think, um, that you can find of some of those areas where there's those little dwellings are still up on the sides of mountain mountainsides. Yeah, but you do see the remains. We've got you some lovely photographs yeah, of them. Yeah, unused nowadays, but you, you see that, that... Um, that still lives on in the landscape, yeah. yeah. And for the sake of um, anyone who's interested as well, as a quick aside, there is a wonderful article about a migratory legend called The Robbers and the Captive Girl, which is very popular in kind of northwest Mayo, but also you've got over 100 versions in Norway and in Finland and Sweden. But it just it's a wonderful way of seeing that this tradition existed in mm. these various regions. So that's ML... 8025 for those of you who love a migratory legend ah, good mo- yeah, it's, it's, it's worth looking up code Perfect, yeah. <laughs> exactly your inside lingo it's but funny yeah. is that because I, even I mean I didn't know that that booting was something that centred so much around women and women's work but it makes total sense because mm-hmm. the, the, those who worked with cattle largely were girls and women that was the work that was done yeah. and you had that division of labour among genders more clearly where men this is the work they do and women likewise is the work that they do and even the money often earned from those particular labors would be kept. So women would keep the money from uh, milk or butter or from eggs or something like that, kind of eggs, and vice versa. And that likewise in their taboos against crossing over that, you know, that, that then a man shouldn't do that work and vice versa kind of thing. You see those kind of... But in lots of the customs that you see about May Day and that revolve around milk as well, there's a huge focus on... Uh, on women mm. I was and going to say actually because they come in to be scapegoats later as we'll discuss oh, absolutely yeah. Yeah, absolutely yeah um, as far as kind of the, the theft of uh, milk or the theft of, kind of butter or the theft of, of one's the house profit basically mm. um, which is why again at this time it's a particularly the festival as it expresses itself is one of there's an air of the necessity of reaffirming boundary and again if you think even of the quarter day as a specific point it's it's you know at this time if you do this this thing will happen you know it's it, it, there's there's all this kind of idea that um, linked into the idea of the festival nothing is is as it usually is yeah. so if you kind of you can both engage in behaviours that would garner you large amounts of profit for the year ahead or if you're not careful if you do something at this time where you're careless you can lose all of that sort of stuff but overall the idea is one of kind of uh, pleasure and and joyfulness and, and welcoming in the summer and so on yeah like this this the what you what you read out there. Can I read it? There's a, there's a poem I have here from the ninth cent, 8th or ninth century, and it's one of the most beautiful. It's from uh, Kenneth Jackson's A Celtic Miscellany, and one of the things that you find about May is welcoming the summer. Oh, and we'll look you. at the, there's the kind of May bow and all this sort of stuff. But this is, um, it'll only take about four hours to read. <laughs> this is. Let me get the tea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, come on, the kettle. This is um, some unknown author writing in the, sorry, the ninth or tenth century. This is a book. An absolutely fantastic book uh, called *A Celtic Miscellany*, who, which was kind of edited and put together by Kenneth Jackson, who was another figure that we could talk about. Oh, he interviewed true. Peg a lot. Um, and he was read, the son she never was. Yeah, her, her other son. He loved, she loved, said that she loved, loved him, him like a son. Yeah, yeah, she wrote these beautiful letters to him. And he, when he first went to listen to her telling stories, as far as I can recall, I could be incorrect. He didn't speak any Irish, 
but he he learned he had the kind of he, he could write phonetics so he'd listen to her speak maybe with Robin Flower and Blaheen the yeah. scholar who was there from from, um, from England and he would uh, listen to her um, he would write everything down in phonetics went away learned Irish came back to his phonetic notes and translated the phonetics you know so it's the, and I think he's only in his early 20s when he did that as well so he was no slouch. But this is a book of his, which is I found beautiful. And this is the first poem that I read in it, which actually kind of blew me away in its kind of vividness and freshness and so on. It was the first one I read in this book, but it just talks about May and, and the welcoming of May. So I'll read a bit of it out. It says, May time, fair season, perfect is colour then. Blackbirds sing a full song if there be a scanty beam of day. The loud hardy cuckoo calls, welcome noble summer. The bitterness of bad weather subsides. The branchy wood is a prickly hedge. Summer brings low the little stream. The swift herd makes for the water. The long hair of the heather spreads out. The weak white cotton grass flourishes. The smooth sea flows. Season when the ocean falls asleep. Flowers cover the world. Man thrives. The maiden flourishes in her fine strong prime. Every wood is fair from crest to ground. Fair each great goodly field. Delightful is the season's splendour. Rough winter has gone. Bright as every fertile wood. A joyful peace is summer. A timid, persistent, frail creature sings at the top of his voice. The lark chants a clear tale, excellent Maytime of the quiet colours. I love it. It's beautiful. Fantastic. It's amazing. I absolutely love that, that poem here. Yeah. The ninth century. But it's some, um, some monk in, in, in the ninth century writing this kind of in praise of May. But the descriptions of, of the natural world and the changes in really the natural good, world as well yeah, are, are beautiful. Uh, and that kind of a mad ardour upon you to race horses as well. But you see, I suppose, a time of of welcoming in and of kind of bidding farewell to the harsh rigours of winter, basically, which are kind of disappearing at this time. But it's nice what you say about um, that flowers cover the world. Yeah. Because that kind of ties in very nicely with our next, um, I suppose, topic on the agenda of kind of verger customs and Indeed, yeah. this reaffirming of boundaries almost as well with um, flowers and may bushes and may boughs and whatnot. The may bow and the may bush is something you see kind of the world over or at least all over Europe it's insofar as this kind of custom was celebrated um, and typically May was welcomed with by gathering flowers gathering primroses um, gathering the May bough in some instances a tree would be cut down which is even May pole but on May morning or on May eve often primroses were gathered and they were scattered on, on windowsills they were scattered at the front of the door they were hung over the door in the house um, and in some cases, a kind of an altar was set up, and that altar often would be dedicated to Our Lady, the Blessed Lady, and, and that that would be kind of set up in, in the house at times as well. Um, but all over Europe, you have this idea of um, of welcoming the summer and welcoming the flowers, or kind of garlands of flowers, and children might go out gathering posies of flowers, or scattering them around, or leaving them in neighbours' gardens, um, or like I said, putting them outside the front of the house. And another thing that you find often is the May bush which would be a kind of maybe a piece of hawthorn decorated with ribbons, decorated with eggshells. Often the painted eggshells left over from Easter were hung on it. Sometimes candles were hung up on it. Um, and you'll still see those. If you travel around the country, in the Midlands and parts of the country around, you'll still see that sort of stuff okay. outside houses. Um, I remember seeing photographs from Sligo Town, so kind of urban area, and there was furs and kind of hawthorn hanging from, from, um, from the doors and from windows and so on. So anyone who's listening as well, go gather on, on May Eve, gather bits of primroses, bits of flowers, scatter them around. And we should actually say, because you just reminded me that we didn't specify that this period of sunset on May Eve mm. to, until noon on May Day, this is the period... This is the feast, this is the period of... Yes, actually we should have met. Yeah, this is the period where 
uh, the strangeness commences yeah. and and lock the doors, stay inside. Essentially, yeah, and it's it's from it's from sundown of the of the the eve before to roughly kind of noon, mm-hmm. and you see the same thing that at Halloween, where where the first of November is the day itself, but the festivities start at sundown the night before, yeah. and Dahio Hogan, in the, in the lore of Ireland, I remember in lectures of his, or he would say that. He held that the conception for our ancestors, I suppose, of day and night uh, was essentially in the reverse, that night came first and then day. And that, likewise, the dark half of the year, the night time of the year, the portion of the year that you'd associate in, in symbolically, maybe, or spiritually, with death in the sense, came first. And that afterwards, then, the, the, the daytime came. So that it made sense to begin these celebrations at, at dusk or at sundown. And, and further, he, I suppose, would point to that, that, that the um, sound, the old, uh, as we celebrate as Halloween, is the old New Year festival that we have. And so the division of the year into these two halves, dark and, and light, uh, was very much hinged on, on these kind of sound and belting festivals. You had the old phrase, oh, sound of belting, so belting of sound, to, to divide the year. Mm-hmm. So it kind of splits it in half in this way. And I suppose I didn't mention when I was talking about quarter days as well, if you split the wheel of the year into these four quarters and, and each of these quarter days and the festivities that we celebrate, they in essence, they describe the season and the feast that we hold for the season. Those in Irish tradition, they fall exactly halfway between the solstices and equinoxes. Yeah. So the solstice when the sun is either at its highest course in the sky in the summer or, or the lowest course in the sky for the longest day and shortest day. And then the equinox when the when the, equate, the Earth's equator passes through the centre of the sun, so that the day and night are roughly kind of similar. It, it, we have festivals that, that celebrate those, so for example Christmas or Yule is, is, is held at the, the, the solstice in, in December, the shortest day. Um, Easter as well is at this time, solstice and equinoxes and so on. True. Uh, Michaelmas, the feast of St. Michael the Archangel in September, these seem to be kind of connected to those equinoxes and solstices. But our quarter days fall exactly halfway, halfway between them. If anyone is listening to, if you Google the wheel of the year, you'll see, because it's hard to describe it. But yeah, it's a nice you, representation when you, when you see it, it. Like the kind of points of the compass and, and how the year is divided in accordance with the passage of the sun and, and the moon and so on and so forth. Um, but, yeah, typically, say, in, in, in welcoming the summer, uh, the may bush and, and flowers and so on were, were, um, were brought about. And often young girls as well would get up at this time before dawn, again, as a reference to boundary, and they'd wash their faces with the Meiju. It was an aid to beauty sometimes, faces, as, was, as it was understood. This is a recording that I play that I've taken from the archive now, and this is from uh, T.Z. Mooney, Teresa Mooney, who's from Staplestown in County Kildare, and this was recorded in 2014. When by, she was 90. When she was 90, God bless her, yeah. Um, recorded by Christopher McCormick, our director here, and, and Carol Barron. Um, who was there doing a kind of study on some of the school's collection material, as far as I remember. But she's describing the collection of kind of a flowers for, for the May bush and how it was unlucky if it wasn't done. So this is um, Teasy Mooney. And at May, May Day, Teasy, can yeah. I ask you? Oh, yeah. You used to put up a bush? A May bush, that's right. Tell us about that. Uh, there yeah. should be more rags on it than nothing else. <laughs> 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 Maybe some other piece of a top torn up and there'd be eggshells and there'd be cowslips and... Um, Primroses, and all them be you gather all them, put them up, and he didn't. It was unlucky he didn't put up. And if you didn't go out and wash the back of your neck on May morning, you're going to be real yellow for the rest of the year. year. <laughs> and wash your forest right across with the whole thing. So I'd like to see them doing it. Then going out put so them out get the wet grass, uh, and washing your face. And so you used to wash your face with oh, yeah. the with the dew oh, off the oh, grass. The dew off the grass, yeah. The and that was for luck. 
and you'd be really the, yellow for the year, year if you didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was it. That's what they tell you anyway, that time. Well, if TD lived till 90, I'm going out in May morning. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, what was, there, was, there was the riddle, um, I washed my face in water that neither poured nor run, mm. and dried it in a towel that was neither woven nor spun. True, which is lovely, isn't it? Yeah, I washed my face in the morning dew and, it dry, and dried it and let it dry in the sun or whatever. Um, but that was common, but it points again to the sense of boundary. The idea is that, so she was saying you'd be very yellow, you'd be very kind of yellow looking if you don't do this. Yeah. So, or that it'll, it'll, it'll kind of uh, add to someone's beauty if they do, or it's lucky for you to do it. The, the sense of boundary is reinforced by the fact that, say, you can't go out on the dawn of the 2nd of May and do this. Nothing will happen. Mm-hmm. Or, or on Tuesday in February or something like that. It, it doesn't matter. It has to be at this particular time, before this time, and, and so on and so forth. There's that sense of, of boundary to it, basically. Again, but for, like I said, from, from sunset of the evening before to roughly noon, um, on the day itself. This is the period when everything is in a state of flux. In the last episode, we were talking about the um, the functions of folk tradition, that it's very much a living thing, and that in many ways, many of these kind of customs and expressions of belief would, in modern society at least, be, they'd be kind of ridiculed, actually, or be regarded as, as kind of backwards or... or um, Naive. Exactly, yeah. Um, but there, it has to be borne in mind that there's just, there's another... There's another type of reasoning being applied, basically, in, in, in when you look at traditional beliefs and folk beliefs and folk custom. There's a kind of an emotional reasoning that looks at, uh, takes in, you know, symbolism, uh, essence, likenesses, coincidences, differences, uh, these sorts of ideas, and it, it proceeds on that basis. In, in, in so it imagines that, that causes and effects can be brought about between objects maybe that are slightly similar. Or, for example... If I want to do harm to some uh, arch nemesis that I have, or something like that, if I have a piece of their garment or a piece of their hair or something like that, if I if I do some damage to that, mm-hmm. then symbolically it, that damage will be transferred to that individual. There's a kind of, but it's a symbolic or emotional way of reasoning your way uh, through kind of certain situations. But but they all relate to very fundamental kind of needs and expressions. Basically, they all they promote uh, human welfare and human well-being at a very fundamental level. And they try to bring it about good luck and banish misfortune. So that they have very specific root concerns, not kind of random or haphazard or just kind of floating around, basically. But again, you see, you see that reference to boundary specifically as far as the, the, the May Day and the May Bush and, and customs surrounding it. Um, there's another instance here, which I'll, I'll go through in the tape that I've taken from the archive. And this is Mrs. Mary Woods, who is actually the mother of uh, Vincent Woods, the RTE. Oh, who's from yes. Radio, and this was collected in or recorded um, by Vincent Woods in 1982 from his mother um, Mary, who was from Drumcairn in County Leitrim, and she was born in 1920. And she's describing how an Antrim woman used to be very kind of un- upset with them that when she came to Leitrim, she realised that they didn't leave these flowers out in the windowsills and so on, and she instructed that they're to do so. This is another piece just about welcoming in the summer, basically. I do remember an old woman who came up from Antrim, Mrs. Mara. And she was appalled that the people up here didn't put mayflowers on the door, around the door, around the windows. And she said it was always done up in Antrim, on May Eve. So, for a while it was done. Just gather the primroses and put them on the windows and put them on the doorstep. So I'll go out and get primroses. It's true. Yeah, go out and pick them up and, and, and uh, send them around. But yeah, flowers, the, the summer was welcomed in with flowers, largely with these gardens of flowers. And, and or the May bush, which was kept outside the house, and like I said, was decorated. And that was often viewed as being unlucky to take it into the house, that it should be kept outside, that you shouldn't... I mean, Hawthorne itself was often viewed as a thing that you shouldn't bring inside. It was often associated with the fairies who 
we'll look at in later episodes as well shouldn't be regarded as the kind of Victorian literary kind of tinkerbell mm-hmm. uh, kind of creations but as kind of nature spirits basically in a sense that can be either malevolent or, or helpful yeah. they can help or hinder but they're generally kind of dangerous and they are often associated with Hawthorne and so Hawthorne has these kind of ominous um, associations with it that it shouldn't be necessarily brought into the house but the Maybush would, would decorate kind of the area and children would often kind of create this this um, a beautiful little bush outside the house that would be decorated like I said in ribbons and eggs and so on and so forth uh, and that was sometimes dedicated, as I was mentioned, to, to Our Lady. Mm-hmm. And this was a time, I suppose, where um, the May altar sometimes was made as well. And that was that was decorated to her. There's another a recording that I'd like to, to play now, which was recorded in 1980 from Mrs. Bridget Dunn in Moorhampton Road in Dublin. And uh, she was 91. And this piece is recording, recorded, and she's describing the, the, the May bush and how it was unlucky to bring it into the house, and likewise the, the creation of the May uh, altar. And sorry, Granny, would you mind telling me about the Maybush again? Tell me why about the Maybush. Well, it's supposed to be the Maybush was, was dedicated to our Blessed Lady. Mm-hmm. And nobody was, was supposed to touch that Maybush, the ones that was growing outside. But when you want to bring flowers to the, to the uh, Lady's altar, you brought the wild flowers of the roads, the cowslips the primroses, and other things that were growing. But we never touched the maybush. We were told not to. We never touched it. No, we didn't do it. And was it unlucky to bring the maybush into, into some So they place? say, so they say. But we never saw anything like that happening to any of us about the maybush. It was only, I always thought afterwards, it just, it just said that way we wouldn't sift the trees of it. And you used to prepare an altar in school? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And an altar at home. A two cloths, a blue cloth, white cloth, and the statue of Blessed Lady. Mm. Oh, yes. And then we used to light the candles on our altar. We had, uh, I used to clean the candlesticks and put the candles into it and make it clean. Mm-hmm. And it used to be lovely. And they say to me, Oh, you're a great girl, you have the shining, shining, yeah. It's nice, isn't it? Isn't it lovely? Yeah. But isn't it great? She's 91 when she's giving this. She's 91 in 1980. The importance of actually getting these voices oh, on absolutely. tape. Yeah, yeah, and it gives a whole, I mean, it gives such a, a kind of resonant quality to the whole thing. It centres it in the whole way where you could see that kind of as text, say. Mm-hmm. But you have a different kind of sense of it altogether when you hear the voice, you know, you when you hear her speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's beautiful, and she, and again, she, you know, she's describing well. What did you use to make the maybush? Well, the flowers of the road, you know, cowslips, um, um, uh, primroses, the kind of flowers that were growing around, and and that's it's working with par- nature in your environment. It's exactly like that. It's exactly that. It's part of parcel of folk tradition. It's so rooted in the natural environment. It's a product of it. Um, if it's even from the seasons, the course of the sun or the moon, how the physical landscape is changing. What are the flowers that are around now? What are the changes that are occurring and what do you have in your local environment? Mm. And so it, that this ties into the variability of folk traditions while maintaining a stable kind of theme. So depending on the flowers that grow in other uh, parts of Europe, then different flowers will be used. But yeah. it's always, what, what do you have in your own environment and, and what can we, can, what can we uh, take in that regard? Uh, to, to, yeah, to reflect these, kind of, these celebrations, basically. And so, now again, as we said at the beginning, there's so much to cover here and we can't possibly do justice to it in, in a podcast. But again, that idea of Mayflowers, the Maybush, the Maybough, 
the May bonfire, May balls as well, May poles. Uh, there's a huge literature for folks that are interested in reading about it, and we'd mm. certainly encourage it. But just to kind of finish on that point, it wasn't always necessarily a light-hearted affair. Sometimes, because you do see <coughs> references to extreme violence. Sometimes, depending on the tradition, so you've got the May bush and the May balls. This idea between communities, and um, we have references from Dublin where the likes of the Liberty Boys and the Ormond Boys would really get into fisticuffs mm. about um, stealing bonfires from one another, the materials. Or in Kilkenny, you've got you've got accounts in the newspapers of men being killed as they try and steal the um, Mayballs from one another, from one community to the other. And it comes to the stage, as with a lot of things in folk tradition in Ireland, where the authorities step in and you see the kind of passing of certain laws. So in the Maybush tradition, a lot of people associate the demise with the passing of these laws where they're looking at um, laws against nuisance and laws kind of environmental or kind of almost early environmental laws about the protection of land and property so that people wouldn't be going in and cutting down trees and growth and greenery. And so you do see this, um, I suppose, that, that kind of juxtaposition of the lighthearted and the festive and the protective elements of these customs, but also this kind of more, the darker, more malevolent side, that it's always interesting just for the, the sake of being thorough to mention. Oh, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. It's, all human life is there, all in from the grotesque and the Good severe and the to the opinion. beautiful. That's it, yeah. And, that, and that's... That's the kind of the function of it ultimately as well. You have um, you have the sense of competition between the Liberty Boys and the Ormond Boys that uh, that you describe. I think Oscar Wilde's father is going around town at that stage, and he mentions some prize uh, bush or hedge is cut from some gentleman's lawn yeah. and stolen away. And then you have um, you know physical kind of conflicts and disputes, but you also see something interesting that you see time and again, which is the the often the the harshness say or the um, the looking down upon by the state and, and kind of the authorities and officials of the state or of officialdom on aspects of folk tradition. You see that in more contemporary period with even Halloween bonfires and the kind of nuisances apparently that are, that are caused by these kind of things. And the Smithfield Horse Fair, you see, you've seen similar kind of instances where this can't be seen to kind of carry on anymore and we have to undo this and so on and so forth. Um, but undoing essentially, I suppose, expressions that are not neat and tidy but they express uh, kind of, I, I would say, the fullness, really, of, of human experience and nature in many ways. That isn't always very uh, twee and kind of neatly packaged and so on. You know, you see these things time and again of magistrates giving out about these horrible practices and the savour of paganism that mm-hmm. kind of lurks in them and so on that need to be kind of shut down. But that dark element serves a, serves a function, it serves, serves a purpose. And it's worth noting as well, at, at, at festival observances in certain times of the year, you have built into them often these kind of transgressive elements. So as opposed to, you know, people might think that, that our traditional societies are so kind of stuffy and conservative and so on, but they have at their, at their core, at their foundation, built into them, like I said, these, these transgressive modes mm-hmm. that find particular expression at festival dates. So you have, for example, on, um, on St. Stephen's Day, the day after Christmas, the Wren boys who go around um, dressed as in women's clothes, often wearing rags and, and causing noise and bursting into houses with the... Uh, a dead wren on a bush, basically, yeah. asking for money to bury the wren, um, entreating the occupants to give them a few pence, having a party in the area later on, and or else cursing them if they don't give them money. You see similar things at 
Halloween, obviously, vestiges now, although it's largely children who go around from house to house, or Brits Day, the, the biddy boys who go around. Um, when weddings occurred, the uninvited male uh, guests in the, or uninvited males in the area would arrive as straw boys mm. wearing anonymous kind of masks. So you have this sense where norms are inverted, are, are reversed. Uh, men are wearing women's clothing, they're going around in anonymous masks, they're making loud noises, they're bursting into your house. But ultimately, it's as though the community is kind of breaking the ties that bind briefly in a certain framework in order to reassert them and, and yeah. kind of tie them tighter together. But it's built in at a very kind of fundamental level. But it often brings in aspects of the grotesque, aspects of the terrifying and so on. But it, it kind of, for me, that's one of the, the, the uh, some of the, the resonance and power of these things, that they don't shirk away from the, the darker element to, to human existence or life. They, they kind of try to incorporate it, you know, as part of this total cycle, basically. Um, but you see that as well in lots of the other customs that we can look at now as well, the sense of, that we mentioned, um, uh, boundary and kind of paranoia and where... At May, the community attempts to kind of reassert itself at its indivis- at, at a fundamental unit, which is the family unit in this sense, as opposed to in, in modernity is a much more kind of maybe individualistic uh, tendency. But, but as far as this time, the, the community asserts itself at May by an absolute kind of uh, reverting to, to the what are the limits of the, of the family unit. So the home needs to be protected, needs to be protected from outside interference, from, uh, from supernatural interference, or from malevolent neighbours. Mm. And the idea is, well, because cattle and so on are so important at this time, and the work of, of the herdsmen is carrying on, and the bullying is occurring, that uh, milk and milk production is a central part of this. And one of the, the products, obviously, that are made from milk and that were so central in the Irish diet and Irish life is butter. And every family, um, or most families around the country, would have their own churn uh, in the house where milk would be churned, um, by women usually and the butter would come on the top mm. but the idea was that if somebody stole by some supernatural charm um, the, 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 the profit from your house that you could churn all the time but no butter would come. would come and so this is one of the reasons that say the fire wouldn't be lit um, on May morning until a certain hour because somebody could see, see the smoke coming from your house and they'd say, all to me, all to me, or some sort of similar yeah. kind of practice. Iman Jatishan or Mohajbanyasa. Iman Jatishan or Mohajbanyasa, yeah. yeah, yeah. The, um, While walking uh, the, backwards into the house. The, the, butter of the, the, the butter of that smoke. On my milk. On, on, yeah. yeah, and that this would be stolen and kind of given to me, so that when I go home and I churn, I'll get twice as much butter and you'll get none. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of the sense. And again, women were the ones who were often thought to be doing this. They kind of travel onto someone else's land at this time maybe skim a well or bail the water from a well in the direction of their land um, or skim across or walk across the field and take the may dew off the grass with, with a rope or a spancel with a cow's tail, kind of hair at the end of it. So you have that symbolic kind of component to it where this is an emotional and symbolic approach to, uh, to being and so on, but you're attempting to attack people basically but through these supernatural, supernatural charms. Um, here's a recording. Again, this is... Uh, this is Mrs. Mary Woods, so Vincent Woods' mother, being recorded in 1982, um, and she's talking about um, the, the not lighting the fire, basically, on, on, on May morning, and the kind of the sense of paranoia, I suppose, that abandoned at the time. How was May regarded when, when you were a child? May was regarded, of course, as the first of summer. Now, the weather mightn't be summery. The children usually took off their boots and stockings on May day. Might have to put them on again. But the fire was most important. So they never liked to put on a smoke, as they said. That is to light the fire early on May morning. And that was the case that anybody was interested in getting their butter. Said that there'd be anybody 
in the guise of a hare or even uh, in human form out on the hills overlooking the houses could say, well, the butter of all these smokes to me for the year. And now my own mother, God rest her, would not give a drop of milk to anybody on May Day. And that's quite true. I've seen her refuse neighbours and strangers and, you know, travelling people. And she told them the reason. She said that in years before that, her father, their people lost all their butter. They could be churning away no butter. It was very important that they had butter at that time. And the priest came to the house and he told him, they got back the butter anyhow through his prayers and whatever else they did. But he said, never to give out any milk on May Day and never to lend the churning utensils to anybody at all during the year and especially to anybody that lived across the stream from them. It ties in with that idea of no lending, no borrowing, no spending. Totally, yeah. It's neighbourliness goes out the window totally. on May 1st, doesn't so it? So locked down. And yeah. orientated. Yeah. And you, you mean don't, don't light your fire, don't do anything, don't let anything escape from the house that is of vital and essential nature or to the house's kind of spiritual well-being for want of a better word and the idea again of the, the fire is such a central kind of part of the house even often um, for example an individual who is lying ill in a house who is sick if the fire suddenly was to become extinguished that would betoken death maybe for the person so the fire should always be tended while someone's ill that has I would feel more to do with this symbolic representation of what the fire is in the home mm. more so than you know keep the person warm it's, yeah. it's obviously important but there's the idea that if something sudden is seen to interrupt into the normal kind of um, uh, running or day-to-day running of the house even in that material sense that it, it has an impact on, on them or it betokens or, or prophecies a more uh, spiritual kind of uh, ailment or, or, or disaster basically so yeah, don't, everything must be contained. Don't let anything out of the house. If somebody comes into the house and wants a light for a smoke or a pipe or something like that, they can't have it. If they want milk, they can't have it. And um, If the smoke escapes from your house before noon, uh, somebody can steal your, your look away and so on. So, and people knew that, which is something to note. So people knew not to ask as well. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just that you were deciding Absolutely. not to give. People knew not to ask because yes. they wouldn't get it. Yeah, yeah. And, and then by the same token, someone who is asking surely is up to some sort of malevolence. Exactly. Someone who is on your land surely is up to some sort of malevolence. But weren't and you saying about the gentleman who had a gun and was not afraid to use it? Oh, well, that was another one, yeah. Yeah, that was um, a farmer who was in uh, Cork. And then I read, we have many questionnaires in the archive here on May Day. And this was um, a farmer in Cork in the 1940s, 1948, I think. I could be totally around there. And he said that if he saw a woman on his land on May Day, he'd, he'd shoot her. And that she, he, she, should, she should know, and she would know. So it would be an instant that she's just up to no good. She's practicing magic or witchcraft or some sort of malevolence. And, that, and this was in the 1940s. Now you, so you have, I suppose, that as an account. And then similarly, if I can read a, a quote out, if I can find it briefly, which I've t- taken from um, William Camden, who wrote a fantastic book, Britannia which has one of these, it's from 15, 1566, 1586, I can't recall exactly, but one of these fantastic titles, it says, it's called Britannia, or a choreographical description of the most flourishing kingdoms, England, Scotland and Ireland, and the islands adjoining out of the depth of antiquity, beautified with maps of the several shires of England, written first in Latin by William Camden, translated newly into English by Philemon Holland, doctor in physic, finally revised, amended and enlarged with sundry additions by the said author. Rolls off the tongue. Wouldn't you hate to be in that marketing department? Yes, exactly, yeah. Gosh. But in Camden's Britannia, so this is from, from the sixteenth, the mid-16th century, um, he talks about uh, May Day, and specifically there's a section at the end, and you can look at this online, he talks about the manners of the Irishry. 
and he describes kind of customs and folk traditions that, that, that abound at the time. And he says, They take her for a wicked woman and a witch, whatever she be, that cometh to fetch fire from them on May Day. Neither will they give any fire then, but unto a sick body, and that with a curse. For, because they think the same woman will the next summer steal away all their butter. If they find a hare amongst their herds of cattle on the said May Day, they kill her, for they suppose she is some old trot that would filch away their butter. They are of the opinion that their butter, if it be stolen, will soon after be restored again, in case that in case uh, they take away some of the thatch that hangeth over the door of the house and cast it into the fire. And upon these calends, or the first day of May, they fully believe that to set a green bough of a tree before their houses will cause them to have great abundance of milk all summer long. So you have this air of kind of um, uncertainty, paranoia, and the neighbourliness goes out the window and you reassert your boundaries with reference to the kind of indivisible unit, which is the family unit, the home as a kind of centre needs to contain itself, basically. And there's an instance here, again, that refers to to women stealing butter and being able to kind of, at at times, it's thought that they'd change into hairs and they'd shapeshift, as as, uh, William Camden describes, uh, and that they would go and they'd suckle all the cattle and steal the milk away, and that then they'd change back into into a a shape of of a woman, but they'd have all your your profit. So this is... um, an individual, Pat Kenny, who's from Glencoyne, Kiltiern in County Dublin. He was 88 uh, when this was recorded in 1980. I've often had it said years gone by here in this place around for certain women, if they come in, if you're churning milk, they take the butter mm-hmm. off your children and though they wouldn't be near it. How used to do that, you know? That's the that's thing, you see. That, 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 that was some charm, you see. I was certain women could do that, yeah. take your butter away. Used to do that in May Day in particular, was it? It was sometime in May that it happened. Yeah. But in fact, I think they had the power, no matter if they did come in, if you were churning, they could do it. Mm-hmm. Was there any way you could stop them or you could get your butter back? Oh, no way. You, they, they, they'd be gone. You'd have no butter in your churn. Yeah. Well, you see, probably they, they didn't take the butter, but they, they, they must have wound or worn over it. But no butter come on the... No butter? On the milk. Mm-hmm. I think that... Well, suppose, there were supposed to take it, but that, that's another mystery. How did they deal with but yeah. the, the butter would be gone anyway. He starts ripping up a paper to smoke his pipe there. Is that what that pipe? is? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was a common idea, often that, that, that as well, that women would change into hairs. There's a, there's a popular legend about um, the, the farmer is going to his herd and they're, they're not giving any milk. He goes to the priest, he goes to other people in the town, in the village around, and nobody can give him a satisfactory answer to his query until he goes to a woman living at the edge of the town, a traveller woman or such, and he'll ask her uh, what he should do, and she suggests, go get a, gray, a black greyhound and look at your, your herd at dawn, see a reference to boundary again, at a specific time go and watch your herd, which he does, he goes to the herd and, and as he watches he sees a hare suckling the cattle from, from cow to cow and he lets fly the black greyhound after this hare takes chase across the field and as the hare is jumping through a gap in a hedge uh, the greyhound manages to just take a bite out of its thigh or such but it runs off into a cottage so the farmer and the greyhound continue their chase until they get into the house and when they get in they just see an old woman sitting by the fire and she's spinning at a wheel or mm. some such and they ask her you know did you see a hare come in here and she denies it no i didn't see anything of the sort and they're about to leave until they notice that she has this the same injury that the hare had so she's shape-shifted and kind of come back into the house and so taking you, their profit and, with and her. And taking the profit with her. So you have the idea that women who, who were working um, with milk were, were more likely to be the ones who would kind of bring malevolence about. Mm-hmm. But often in that story as well, then, you have 
the, the individual who is the source of the of the danger, say, is the old woman living on her own at the edge of the town, this kind of liminal and, figure and in herself. And not necessarily the old woman either, because we see um, references to, to kind of old women, widows, unmarried women, yes. and Protestant women, anything so, that's other. Essentially what you have, I suppose, is the danger in the figure who maybe doesn't fully conform to the, the, yeah, the, the, norms. the norms of the kind of society, basically. However, you also often have then the only individual who can resolve this particular problem is the same kind of woman. Okay. So you have the woman who, who the only one who can give the, the example of well, how is this to be resolved correctly uh, is the woman living on her own at the edge of the town who's able to say, get a black greyhound and go at this time and, and it'll be revealed to you. So you have these individuals are both kind of the source of, of danger and confusion, but also a source of knowledge. And, and the two things are kind of wrapped up together, that, that there's the danger in the unknown, but it also provides you with, with uh, knowledge. Can't live with us, can't live without us. That's basically, kind of that's basically the deal, yeah, but it's these, these kind of peripheral... Life lesson number two. Peripheral, <laughs> peripheral kind of liminal figures who, who provide uh, a certain kind of insight but the society and its structures would say that not all women should be like this. Mm. This isn't this isn't the way that um, that kind of our society should be modelled. Say, or, or, but within that, they there is this form of kind of, of danger, uh, but also of knowledge. You know, that these things are kind of contained, which is quite an insightful approach. I think yeah. to, you know, to the unknown, basically. You know, um, but yeah, this is the idea of comedy that it was that was the kind of the malevolence at this time was attached to women largely. And kind of to kind of round the circle so to speak there were charms and protections available for people who had their butter stolen wasn't there there were um, and, and that we t- talk about um, those common motifs of the warm iron and mm. um, or putting kind of protecting the churn with the warm iron or placing spansels and mm. um, in wells or kind of holy water along the thresholds not only of the house but also of the, the homestead and then the field so you see it yeah. kind of circling out and building up each threshold family home um, and, the land. And, and the land needs to be protected yeah. salt to be put in your in your well mm-hmm. um, or yeah as, as you described and even uh, Camden mentions kind of the patch being taken or thrown in the fire sometimes the individual who had stolen your profit could be found by placing the metal from a plough or the chains or pieces of metal in, in the um, in the fire and as this heat would be transferred to the chains, it would be then be transferred or to the piece of the, the plough that was put in, it would be transferred to the, the individual who stole your butter. And they'd come to your door in pain and distress, please, uh, allowing you, please, kind of to relieve them of this, at which point you'd throw some butter maybe into the fire and it would, uh, they'd, be, they'd be relieved of their pain and you'd, re- you'd receive your, your luck again. So this is that kind of emotional reasoning and sympathetic magic that kind of goes into... Um, uh, these types of kind of conceptions and customs, basically. There's a very brief piece here I have again from um, from Mrs. Mary Woods, and, and she's talking about butter that was stolen and a spansel that was used. A spansel is a, a rope used to tie uh, uh, cattle's, cattle's legs. legs, basically. So this is, again, you're taking something, an aspect of material culture, but you're using it in this kind of inverse way or another way that has a more spiritual or magical element to it. So this is a, a description of butter being stolen but then being gotten back. The belief that the butter could be taken. How... Could that, how was it believed that could be done? By that, by just being out on May morning, but there may have been something else. You know, they may have had a thread or a spancel. Now, there was one case where a man actually found the woman milking his cow and she had a spancel, a straw spancel on the cow, but she had to run away anyhow and leave the spancel behind. And he took it up and brought it in, Left, threw it up on the, as we said, the loft was over the kitchen, thought no more about it. And when he turned again, 
the butter, the churn was full of butter. So it was believed that the spansel had had... Yes, yes, he got so alarmed anyhow, but every time he churned, it was the same thing. He went to the priest and told him the story. He said, well, keep the spansel until you believe that you have regained all the butter you lost and then burn it. And he burned it when he realised that he had all the butter got back. So this is the kind of, yeah, the danger of the, of the, of the time, basically. It's, um, looking at May Day is actually a lovely way to start the, kind of the series proper, really, isn't it? Because it's just so rich and full in terms of the oral literature, the material culture, mm. the customs. Calendar custom is always a good way to, to bring these things out, but it's a vast vast area of, of um, folk custom and belief that is we can't barely begin to scratch the surface of it here today essentially we'd be here until next May Day we, we, we really yeah, exactly. and yeah. beyond yeah. and one thing we should say just so for those who are interested further there's a vast trove of material as Johnny was saying here in the archive between the manuscript collection the audio collection and also we have the questionnaires as Johnny mentioned and even I, yesterday I just briefly went through those that could potentially tie in with a theme like this. We have questionnaires on milk, on Maytime itself, on dairies, on quarter days, on butter, on fairs and hiring fairs. So a huge variety of ways into this topic where it might appear. Um, so it might not necessarily just be under calendar custom. There's, there's a numerous um, array of lines into it, isn't there? Mm. That if people were interested, we'd recommend you get in touch or, or visit really because That's there's it. plenty um, to keep you going likewise on, on the website on, on the mm. a lot of this has been digitised and you can look at you can type in uh, May Day or May Time um, and you'll find an enormous amount of references come up from 1937 from the schools collection so if you can't make it into us you can look at that material online at D-U-C-H-A-S dot I-E um, or else come and visit do you're always welcome mm. So um, we're going to draw to a close there because we realise that it's a huge um, beast of a subject and kind of it's time to go and have your tea now and we'll have um, ours. And we'll see you for the next episode, which will revert to a monthly podcast schedule now. These first two, we kind of wanted them to come quite closely mm-hmm. together just so that we'd catch your attention. But we'll now kind of stick to our the first week of each month or so. Oh, yes, that would be the ideal. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and given, say, even the connection with women at this time in May um, and some of the narratives associating it either with kind of the, you know, wise women or the hags at the edge of the town or also the altars to Our Lady and so on that were put up, we wanted to finish up with something from the archive, which is something that we'll do uh, in each of these as well. And this is um, that we're going to play now a Shannon's song sung by Shosa Bohemi, fantastic singer. Um, from Connemara's Queen in a Dreamer, which is a kind of uh, a song around kind of Our Lady's description or how she, she her experiencing Christ's passion basically and is being crucified essentially, and she and she is um, it's this kind of lament for what's being done to him basically. But it's a beautiful song, so we're finished on 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 the on this particular note, and see us next time. Where I'll be quoting some Virgil, no doubt. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 